Well, I imagine that in most jobs, there are some weeks that are just harder than others. Um, for teachers, um, I get the sense that report writing week is one of those times. Um, for accountants, it's probably tax return season. Uh, for farmers, it's harvest time or shearing or probably the list goes on. Um, you know, there's just some times that are more difficult than others. And uh, that's how I felt this week. Um, this passage that we come to here in Matthew chapter 24, I think it's one of those weeks. Uh, it's one of those weeks when it's just a bit more difficult than others. Let me read to you um, something I read at the start of the week. This is what Don Carson says as he begins his commentary on this chapter. He says, Few chapters of the Bible have called, for, um, have called forth more disagreement among interpreters than Matthew 24 and its parallels in Mark 13 and Luke 21. The history of interpretation of this chapter is immensely complex. And uh, to be honest, uh, the more you read of the commentaries, uh, the more complex it becomes. Um, now, I say that firstly so that you're just aware of the complexity um, of trying to understand this part of the Bible. Uh, but also just a signal up front that, you know, I'm not going to be able in the next 25 minutes or so that we normally take um, to unravel all of the difficulties. And so what I say today may not be a satisfying explanation of this somewhat difficult and controversial chapter. So that's my opening disclaimer as we begin. <laughs> so how do we um, approach a chapter like this? Well, as always, uh, we do it with our Bibles open, so do have it open in front of you as we, um, so that you can look on. And I really want to consider, I guess, two main questions today. Uh, first, what time, or maybe better, what times uh, do these words of Jesus refer to? And then second to think, well, what does it mean for us? I mean, what's the practical pastoral implications that Jesus would have us learn as we live as his people today. And as we come to the first question, what um, time or what times uh, is Jesus referring to as he speaks these words to his disciples? Well, this really is where much of the debate lies. And I think there's three main options. Uh, number one is that everything in this chapter refers to the end of the world, um, that it's Jesus here speaking of some uh, time still in the future, uh, the kind of things that are going to happen before Jesus returns. That's option one. Option two is that it's all about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, that it's all speaking about those kind of events that happened uh, in the lead-up to the year 70 AD. Or three, uh, that everything that Jesus speaks of here is actually fulfilled in the events of his cross resurrection, ascension, and then the commissioning of his disciples. Um, so they're kind of the three um, big options out there. Or could it be, maybe option four, a combination of some or all of the above? And that's probably how I understand it. Um, and I think as we go through it, I think we'll see Jesus saying some things uh, that do refer to the end of the temple I think there's some things he says that are looking beyond that to the final end. But I also think there are some events here described in such a way that they can only refer to what Jesus himself will go through and uh, that he speaks these things uh, to prepare his disciples for what is really going to unfold just in the next week ahead. 
So as we try and work this out, well, a good place to start is always to ask, well, what is the context of the chapter? And chapter 24 um, that we're in today, uh, it's this speech that continues right through to the end of chapter 25. Um, and what came just before it, if you're here with us last week in chapter 23, we had Jesus uh, denouncing the scribes and the Pharisees, saying how really uh, they are on the way out as the religious leaders. What's going to come after this in chapter 26 is the religious leaders are then going to get together to plot to kill Jesus. And so I think the context here shows us that there's this big shift going on and it's kind of out with the old and in with the new. It's out with the old religious leaders and the worship at the temple and that whole uh, system and it's in with the Messiah, uh, the new temple, who is Jesus. And so that's really the big shift that's going on here. We're moving from the temple and that Old Testament system and everything that went along with that, uh, that whole way of worshipping God. We're moving from that to it all being centred on Jesus. Now that, I think, is the seismic shift that's going to take place in the next few days, in the events of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But then, of course, the impact of that change will reverberate down through history. Uh, it will be seen in the eventual destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It will finally be seen in the arrival of the new temple at the end of the age, in the, in the middle of the new Jerusalem, on the day when Jesus comes again and all things are made new. Now, we know that the uh, temple is on view in this chapter because that's how it starts in 24 verse 1, if you take a look uh, right there at the beginning, Jesus has just been teaching at the temple, uh, teaching against the hypocritical way of the temple leaders. That's what we saw last week. And so the chapter begins like this in 24.1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another everyone will be thrown down. Now, likely uh, the reason why the disciples um, say this to Jesus, you know, look at the temple, look at its great buildings, I think it's probably maybe to try and comfort him. You know, after all of the conflict of the previous chapters, the sense here is, well, look at the temple, Jesus. At least, you know, here is something solid and secure. Here is something we can rely on, God's temple. As long as the temple stands, well, that's how we know that God is among us and with us. But what's Jesus' response? Not one stone will be left. Everyone will be thrown down. And for the disciples, I mean, those words coming true would be unimaginable. I don't know where you were um, last year on January 6. Um, we were out of town, we were on holidays. Um, that, of course, was the day of the Capitol riot. And um, I can remember turning on the TV that morning and you know, seeing scenes like this, you know, people going up over those barricades, people storming through the Capitol building, and honestly, I thought it was a movie. You know, unimaginable. Is that really happening? And for the disciples here, I mean, did Jesus, did he really say that? 
the temple destroyed? I mean, it was unbelievable. And yet 40 years later, within the lifetime of these disciples, within that generation, that is exactly what happened. The Romans came and they destroyed the temple. Not one stone was left on another. So is that what the chapter is all about? Maybe it is. But as we read it, I mean, Jesus also seems to be speaking about something beyond that on a much larger scale as well. Because he speaks in this chapter, he talks here about nations rising against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. Which means, I think, that he's not only talking about the destruction of the temple, but he seems to be talking about the end of the world. Now, that probably shouldn't surprise us because... Well, for the disciples, at least as far as they were concerned, the end of the temple did mean the end of the world. And that's their response there in verse 3. Uh, take a look at that. It says, The disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming end of the end of the age? So as far as they're concerned, if the temple was to be destroyed, that must be the end of the world. But of course we know that the destruction of the temple was not the end of the world. And so here Jesus needs to correct his disciples' thinking. And he does that by separating these things out. And you might have noticed as the passage was read that he talks kind of about those days and that day. And that's where we split the readings today at the end of verse 35. I think he speaks at the beginning about those days maybe the things that will happen within this generation of the disciples. But then he talks about that day, now that final day. And about that day, well, no one knows. The angels in heaven don't know, not even the sun. And if anyone tells you that they do know, well, you know what to do. Now, the issue I think that we have as we try to understand this chapter is that Really, one is a sign of the other. But Jesus makes clear they're not going to happen together. And I think the difficulty for us is knowing when Jesus is talking about one and when he's talking about the other. But along with that, there's another event in view here as well. Now, if you've got a uh, pew Bible in front of you, I mean, the NIV title there at the start of chapter 24 tells us that the chapter is about those first two events, the destruction of the temple and the end times or the last day. Um, that's not actually part of the original text. That's what's been added as a help for us later. But it's also, I think, I think we see it's also about something much bigger than those things. Something much more significant, if you can imagine that. Indeed, something much more unimaginably horrific. And this is what Jesus speaks of in verse 15. If you take a look there, he's quoting here from Daniel chapter 9. And he speaks about the abomination that causes desolation. Now, what is that? Well, there's a clue. Jesus says that this is what Daniel spoke about. And then kind of in brackets there, he says, let the reader understand. And he says that for a purpose. He's saying, if you know the Old Testament, if you know Daniel, well, you'll understand this. You'll know what I'm talking about. 
And indeed, I think if we've been listening carefully to Matthew's gospel, then we'll understand as well. Because what has Matthew been showing us that everything has been leading up to? What is the most significant, climactic, but also unimaginable event that the gospel has been building to? Well, three times so far in the gospel, Jesus has explicitly stated stated it for his disciples, but they haven't understood. Matthew chapter 16, then chapter 17, then this is what he says in chapter 20. Jesus said, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day he will be raised to life. And friends, now Jesus is in the final week and he's speaking to his disciples and that time has arrived. And he is preparing his disciples now for that worst thing imaginable. He is about to be betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter. He'll go into the garden to sweat blood over what he must go through What is the abomination that causes desolation? What is worse than the end of the world? Worse than the destruction of the temple? What's the cross? And in verse 21, here Jesus says, For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. What is that? I would think it has to be the unequaled suffering that Jesus endured for us at the cross. Not just his physical suffering, which was excruciating, but God-forsakenness. The wrath of God poured out on him for the sins of the world. And if you go back to Daniel, Daniel describes it like this in 9.26. He describes the abomination that causes desolation and says, on that day, the anointed one will be put to death. The anointed one, the Christ. That's when it's going to happen. And Daniel 9.27 then goes on to say this, the anointed one will be put to death and he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Let the reader understand. This is what is coming. And Jesus says these things to prepare his disciples for what is about to happen, for the end that was decreed for him. That by his suffering, by that one perfect offering of himself, he will put an end to sacrifice and offerings. And at that very moment, the moment when that happens, what will Matthew record for us? Well, it's much like here in verse 29, darkness comes across the land. The earth quakes, the rocks split, the tombs break open. And the curtain of the temple is torn from top to bottom. Why does that happen? Because it's not needed anymore. The temple is now obsolete and within a generation it will be taken down, never to be built again. Because the final sacrifice for sin has been made. The new temple has come. 
think that's what this chapter is telling us. There is this huge world-changing shift taking place and a new and better way is being opened for us. I know that doesn't unravel all of the difficulties, but with that in mind, let me ask our second question. Just to think, what does this mean for us? You know, what are the practical implications that Jesus would have us learn so that we might live well as his people today? And I think there's at least two things we can take from Jesus' words in this chapter. The first, that as we live in light of the end, we should be alert but not alarmed. Uh, See, first of all, Jesus says that we should be alert as we live in these days. Um, See verses 4 and 5, he says, do not be deceived. Verse 4, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah and will deceive many. Notice that, many will come, many will be deceived. And this is the story of the church down through the ages. Jesus says it'll happen again and again and again, so be alert. Be alert to those who would present a different version of Jesus to the Jesus we read about in the New Testament. Be alert to those who would try and substitute themselves for Jesus, saying things, well, he might have said some good things back then, but now I'm the person to look, listen to. Many will come. Be alert. And in these times, Jesus says, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed about world events. See from verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. What's he saying? There will be international tension when you turn on the news. There will be wars and rumours of wars. There will be natural disasters. There will be pandemics. Jesus says this is all part of life in a fallen and broken world So don't get too distracted by those things. And one thing I think for us, you know, don't get into that mode of thinking that I do hear Christians saying at times things like, oh, isn't the world getting worse and worse? You know, it's never been worse, has it? It must be nearly the time of the end. I mean, is that what Jesus says here? No, he doesn't say that. He He says that all these things will happen. They'll just go on happening. And in verse 9, he says persecution will happen. Don't be alarmed about that. Don't be alarmed because these are the beginning of the birth pains, which is actually an image that should fill us with hope because something is about to be born. Something new is going to be brought to life. Now, when the time is completed... Well, it's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. But right now, even within this age, well, a new kingdom has come. And it is growing, a kingdom of Christ that cannot be shaken. So, friends, be alert, but not alarmed. And then second, I think the other big thing we see here is that in this age, we are to be about the master's business. 
That's the second practical implication, that while we live now as followers of Jesus, we've got a job to do. And I think Jesus shows us this in a couple of spots in this chapter. Take a look from verse 30. Um, This is him speaking at that time just after the great distress, which I take it is primarily speaking about the cross. Uh, Verse 30, he says, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all of the people of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now think again, if we've read Daniel, we'll understand what this means. Um, Often this is understood as referring to Jesus uh, returning at the end of the age. But again, look at verse 34. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. Jesus is saying here to his disciples, this will happen in your lifetime, in your generation. You disciples, you will see this. The Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and then sending out his angels, his messengers, to gather his elect from one end of the heavens to the other. And what is this? Well, it's not the end of the world. It's the start of the Great Commission. And again, Jesus is quoting from Daniel, this time from one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7, where he speaks there of the Son of Man. This is what he says. I could only just fit it on one slide. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. What is Daniel describing there? Well, he sees one like a son of man, that title that Jesus uh, takes to himself, coming in the clouds, coming to the Ancient of Days. It's Acts chapter 1. After Jesus has suffered and died and risen, then for the final time he appears before his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And what do they see? Well, they see him taken up in the clouds. And he comes, he is led into the presence of the Ancient of Days. And then while the disciples, they're just standing there, aren't they? Just looking up, mouths gaping open. (laughs) And the angels appear and they say why do you stand there looking up into the sky this same jesus will return again in the same way that you have seen him go and what that means is that now is time to get on with the mission it means now there's work to be done in jerusalem in judea in samaria to the ends of the earth and I think in this chapter, in verse 14, uh, verse 14 is a key, key verse. It says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
Friends, this is the Great Commission. The Son of Man has gone to the Father. He has been given authority over all people and nations and he's now sent out his messengers to gather in his elect in these last days. Now we don't know how long these days will last but there's a couple of parables at the end of this chapter that Jesus um, I think kind of drives home the point. Firstly uh, that it will be unexpected That's the point of verses 36 to 41. Don't get too caught up in ideas of the rapture there. I think it's just saying that it will be unexpected. But then pick it up in verse 42. Jesus says this, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. And friends, as we come here towards the end of this chapter, well, I think here is a picture of the church. You know, a picture of what we're supposed to be doing in these last days. I don't know if this happened when you're at school, but you know, when I was at school, as soon as the teacher went away, you know, as soon as the teacher went out of the classroom, what happened? The moment the teacher, the back was turned, you know, if there was no proper supervision, there was no work getting done. Maybe that was just my school, I don't know. But see, what are the students supposed to be doing while the teacher is away? They're supposed to just set a guard in the hallway and watch out? Are they supposed to take bets on how long the teacher will be away for? I think that's how some people interpret this chapter. No, they're meant to get on with the work they've been given. And for us, Jesus has given us a job to do, to gather his people in. That's what we're here for. That's what St Aidan's is here for. To gather in God's people through the good news of the gospel. And friends, as we finish today, well, what what is it that will motivate us for that work? Well, I think what will help us to be about the master's business is to understand the time in which we live. And the time in which we live is the end time. We live in the last days, the last days that are leading up to the last day. And when that last day comes, the writer of Hebrews tells us that everything will be shaken. And the disciples in this chapter, you know, what they discovered was that the things that they thought were most secure and stable in this life, well, Jesus said not one stone will be left on another. And for us, I think, you know, the things that we so often cling to in our lives now for safety and security, you know, our health, our wealth, whatever it is, well, it's all going to be shaken and it's all going to come down. But the message here is that one thing will remain. Heaven and earth may pass away, but what Jesus has promised will never pass away.
And so in these last days, may we cling to him and to his kingdom, which will never be destroyed. And as we wait, may our master find us faithful servants as we live for the day when he comes again. Let me pray for us today. Our Father God, we do thank you for uh, your word to us today. And Father, I pray that as we do live in a world that is so often um, chaotic and uncertain, that we would be those who would find great hope and assurance in you and your promises, that we would live in this world for Jesus and his kingdom, which will endure forever. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.